Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the best new host and podcast show, Calling a Man's Answer Show, live every week. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to me on your favorite streaming platform to stay up to date with the show. Uh, but before all that, I wanted to give you guys a shout out real quick. As I was editing this episode, I checked my stats and we hit a crazy number this last weekend. You know, it's unreasonable the support you guys have given me these last few months and how fast the podcast is growing. So I love you guys. Thank you guys so much. I just want to give you guys a shout out. You demanders have made this happen. It's awesome. Merch will be out soon. Um, but other than that, this is episode 47 with Kenan Hutchinson. He's a fourth year PhD student out of Northwestern University for neuroinvasive virology. He's the creator and the host of Science with Kenan, and he's a member and super fan of the Psy community. All of his information can be found at Kenan Hutchinson on Instagram. Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Kenneth Hutchison. I am a fourth year PhD candidate at Northwestern University, where I work in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology. So I study viruses for a living, I guess. Um, but outside of that, I do a lot of science communication and teaching too. So I'm super passionate about education, uh, really passionate about how education links to socioeconomic status. And that's kind of what I, my life's dream is, is to be able to be in that realm and help make, have people have a better life for themselves through education. That's very interesting. I'm sure, obviously you did this before, but I'm sure your life has become exploded with questions during this fantastic COVID pandemic season we're seeing right now. <laughs> um, has, have you seen an uh, impulse or like an explosion in questions regarding what viruses are, what this virus is and, and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. I always joke around that. Uh, so I've been studying viruses for seven, going on eight years now. Uh, and I always joke around that this is the first time that people actually thought what I did was important. <laughs> uh, but yeah, when it first started off, I just started commenting uh, on kind of what I was seeing and some questions that I was getting. And then uh, as it grew, my family would ask me questions and I figured if they were curious, other people might be. So I started posting about it and that really just triggered kind of an explosion in my Instagram following. And now, uh, I, I've taken a break. I needed a little personal time, but mm -hmm. at one point I was feeling probably a hundred to 200 questions around COVID a day, wow. which was, yeah, intense, but a lot of fun. I, I, I love talking to people and just like being able to like help people feel empowered and educated. So it was a lot of fun. So, you know, me being me and not knowing very much about viruses and everything, I know it's the coronavirus strain and things like that, and we have seen these before, but what exactly is this coronavirus strain and what is so um, specific about this COVID-19 virus? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So coronaviruses are nothing new to humans. There are eight of them that infect us now. Uh, normally, coronaviruses for, wait, let me make sure I've got that factoid right. Let's see, SARS, MERS, seven of them, seven of them that infect us now. Uh, there's four of them that cause about 30% of the common cold. So we get them pretty much yearly. The, and normally they're not that bad. These are human adapted versions mm -hmm. of it. Um, but they also infect other animals. And sometimes when you get a virus that jumps from one host would be like what it infects into a new host, uh, it's dangerous, not because the virus is trying to like mess you up or anything, but more so because the virus is tailored to infecting that one type of thing. And so when it jumps to the new version, it doesn't know how to hold itself back. Right. Mm -hmm. So the virus doesn't want to kill you. That's, a, that's a bad strategy. It, it wants to make as many of it as it, of itself as it can and pass on. But when it jumps into something new, it doesn't know how to like, how to tame that down so that it, it's 
optimally infecting you. Um, and we call these zoonotic infections. And so this has happened twice in the past with the same type of virus. So the coronavirus. In 2003, we had the original SARS. So scientists are terrible at naming things. SARS is just a sudden uh, acute respiratory syndrome, <laughs> S-A-R-S. That's what it stands for. Um, and so that kicked off in 2003. Uh, and it was, it was much more lethal than this. I think off the top of my head, I want to say that one had like a 8% fatality rate, 12% fatality case fatality rate compared to the, the 1% to 3% that we see with this one. Mm-hmm. But often what you see with that is the more lethal it is, the less infectious or the less ability it has to spread. And that's what we saw with that one. So only, only a couple thousand people got sick. And by the end of 2004, I don't think there's been a single case of the original SARS since. So it kind of petered itself out. So uh, would, um, just a question, just a clarification question on the difference between a coronavirus and a flu is the coronavirus, does it have to jump from one host to the other? Uh, no, no. So like I said, there's, there's four coronaviruses that, that infect humans just regularly, uh, seasonally, kind of like a rhinovirus causes the cold or the flu. Uh, flu is, I know a lot of people compare them because you get similar symptoms, but they're actually very different viruses. The flu scares the crap out of me. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. It mutates so quickly. So that's influenza viruses. They actually started in birds. Um, and so birds are what, are the natural reservoir for flu viruses, and then they make the little hop over. So influenza A, we hit, you might know like H1N1. I do, uh, yes. Swine flu, yeah. right? Yep. Um, or H3N2. Those are the, the kind of pandemic flus that have hit us. But uh, the, re- the way that they get their names, that H actually stands for, there's two proteins on the outside of the virus that help it infect your cells. So you have hemagglutinin, sciencey term, but that's what H is for, and then neuramidase, uh, mm-hmm. which is the N. And you can look at those two proteins and kind of classify which virus it is. And there are, oh man, make me do a lot of virology off the top of my head. I want to say there are like 14 different H's now and 11 different N's. Uh, so 14 times 11, that's the number of combinations that you have for different HN flu types that wow. could potentially infect you. And then on top of that, uh, on the tippy top of each of those H's, there's this region that can pick up mutations really quickly. Uh, and so the flu virus pretty much mutates every time it's inside of you and every single year, which is why we, one of the reasons we need a new flu shot each year, because it's just so hard to keep up with it. Yeah. That's not the case with the coronavirus, which is nice. That. That is nice. So a flu, you know, you hear a lot of this, or even coronavirus, you hear a lot of this, like you just said, mutation, but I don't think a lot of people know exactly what a mutation is and how it happens inside of a virus. Could you just explain to us what exactly a virus mutation is and how it happens? Yeah, for sure. Um, so at the, at the scientific level, a mutation is a change in the DNA. So Viruses aren't living things, not like you and I are. So we, all living things have DNA. Our DNA gets turned into RNA, which I always explain like DNA is like a a recipe book or a textbook. And then RNA is a single recipe out of there. Um, And then that single recipe you use to make a dish, right? I I like the cookbook analogy. So DNA has all of the dishes you could possibly make. Mm. 
it's not beneficial for your body to make every single recipe though, right? No. If you think that the DNA is the exact same in your stomach cells as it is in your eye cells, and you don't want to have like hydrochloric acid from your stomach in your eyes, that'd be terrible. Please do not do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the way we get around this is your, those cells can pick and choose which proteins they want to make, and that's the RNA. And the RNA is the recipe for the protein it wants to make, and then it makes that protein. Okay. And so just like in a textbook, uh, it's letters. Letters are what make up your DNA. So the human alphabet is 26 letters, A through Z. Uh, in terms of DNA, there's four letters, A, T, C, and G. And they make these combinations, and those combinations are decoded by your body, and that tells them how to make proteins, essentially. Um, but so a mutation occurs is when one of those letters changes. So I always like to think about you're, you're in college, you write papers, right? Mm -hmm. When you're writing in Word, do you have like perfect spelling or do you get the little red squiggles that pop up when you're in the middle typing? Reg squiggles, red Oh yeah, squiggles. same here, same here. So those spelling errors, those happen in your body too. So every time you make a new cell, you have to copy all humans have 3.2 billion letters in each cell. Fascinating. Yeah. So you have to copy all of those letters and our machinery that copies that makes a mistake uh, about once every 100,000 letters. So you make a couple mistakes in there and the little red squiggly line comes up and you have to go back and change it. And if you correct it, you're good. But if one of those letters, say an A, gets accidentally changed to a C and mm -hmm. it stays... That's, that's a mutation. And so and most of the time, mutations don't do really anything. So you can change a letter and it won't change the, the protein. Um, sometimes you can change the letter and it will change the protein, but it doesn't, it's just neutral, we say, so it doesn't mm -hmm. hurt it. Viruses, they have a lot smaller uh, genomes than we have. So I told you we have 3.2 billion letters. Viruses, they are like the Spartans of life. They try to, they're minimalist. So the coronavirus is actually a really large RNA virus. And even as a large virus, it only has about 30,000 letters. Um, so very few, and it has less room for air. So those mistakes can actually kill it more often. Like it makes a mutation, oh, okay. messes up a protein. It's like, oh, we don't have enough room for mistakes. It kills us. But every now and then, just by chance, you can pick up a mutation that's, that's beneficial and helps you. And over time, that's how, kind of how evolution occurs. So we've oh, wow. picked up mutations that maybe help us to... I don't know, not have tails anymore, right? And so like we are easier, it's easier for us to walk upright versus uh, our primate ancestors who could swing in trees. Uh, in terms of a virus, the mutations that are occurring is uh, one of the mutations, we think it helps it bind to the, the receptor, the, the gate that gets it into cells better. And so since it's better at holding on to that, that means that you need less viruses to get into cells and start an infection. So that's a beneficial mutation. So mutation in the body, if your body does that, is that technically what cancer is? That's 100% what cancer is. Uh, I don't know why I'm laughing at this. Uh, cancer is <laughs> <No, it's, laughs> not so, funny. I'm yeah, just excited yeah. that you got it. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but that makes me question, because if everyone has mutation, why don't we all have cancer? We do. Your body gets cancer every single day, pretty much. Uh, but our bodies aren't plebs. Our bodies have really cool systems in place that help us uh, to prevent this. So you have your immune system, which can recognize things that don't belong there. So if you mm -hmm. get a cancerous cell, your immune system can recognize it and say, hey, we need to clean this crap up, get, it, get rid of it. 
Uh, but even before that level, you actually have things called checkpoints in your cells. And so your cells, as they're checking them, if it picks up a mutation that's going to make your cell cancerous, uh, as long as the cell's functional, one of those checkpoints will say, hey, this is not good. And it'll actually cause the cell to kill itself. Call it like uh, seppuku. It'll be like, oh, nope, I'm going to kill this body. This is not good. So I'm just going to sacrifice myself. Wow. And that happens in your body pretty much every day. Self-destruct buttons inside the cell. That's oh, yeah, for sure. Fascinating. So, okay, so... Let me get this. Let me see if I understand why it happens in or, or cancer happens in older people or prolonged use. Your body, that checkpoint gets really, it, it gets like worn down or it's like harder for it to see the, the uh, mutations occur. Is that why like older people or long-term use causes cancer? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of research that goes into cancer. The Institute that I'm at, that's one of the big, we're one of the leading cancer research centers. Um, but yeah, with old age, as your cells get old, we call it senescence. They're more likely to make mistakes. Um, and so you're going to pick up more mutations or you're not going to catch and proofread those mutations. Uh, but also if you just think you're made up, uh, there's like, uh, 30, 32, 30-ish trillion cells, trillion cells that make you who you are, human cells. And most of those all have to copy themselves as you grow. And so the longer that you live, the more copies there are, the more copying of your DNA, which just means that as you grow longer, your chances of picking up a cancerous mutation just increase, right? Yeah. Just by like odds and everything like that. Yeah, for sure. It's like if you roll 20 die, if you have yeah. 20 die and you roll them, like if you roll them five times, let's say that's five years, the chances of you rolling all sixes is relatively low. But as you keep rolling them for 60, 70, 80 tries, 80 years, the that's more and more chances for you to pick up all sixes, which will say sixes is bad and that's cancer. So a question back to viruses that I have for you. I was thinking the other day when I was talking to someone that, you know, wearing these masks for someone like me, who's, I would call myself pretty healthy and athlete. And I haven't been sick now in a year and a half. And I feel like that could almost be a little detrimental to my immune system. Isn't, is it, or is it not important when you're young to get occasionally sick, um, to keep that immune system build up? Or am I just like talking nonsense? No, no, no. It's a, it's a good question. Um, there's so many, that's a very nuanced answer. I would, I would first start by saying in, in the case of you and me, like in your twenties, you're no longer really young, pretty much like once you hit like 25, your body's actually like more dying than it is growing anymore. Uh, uh, when you're, when you're a young kid, for sure, you being exposed to pathogens is whether they're good or bad bacteria or germs, like that's going to help your immune system train over time. But you've been exposed to, you're literally swimming in microbes. We live in a microbial world. There's more of them than there are us and they're on us all the time. So you've been exposed a lot. And by wearing a mask, or even if you weren't exposed to anything, you're in a completely sterile environment, the immune system that you already have is, okay. is set. So you're good. But yeah, definitely as a younger kid, that's, that's something that, that's a hypothesis that a lot of people have is like parents are overprotective now mm -hmm. and the kids don't like eat dirt anymore. I'm not saying you should eat dirt. There's a lot of germs in there that you don't want, but you're not being exposed to as many yeah. allergens and germs, which could actually have a, a detrimental impact on you later down the road. That makes sense. Uh, 
That's why they say you want to get chicken pox as a kid and not measles as an adult, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. You just brought up two very cool viruses. Do you mind if I tangent on that? No, please do. <laughs> uh, yeah. So first of all, chicken pox as a kid. Uh, yes. The reason you actually want to get chicken pox as a kid is your immune system is naive. It's not trained enough to have a really strong response to it yet. So I had chicken pox as a kid. It sucked, but you just get like spots all over you. Your immune system doesn't overreact. Uh, it gets rid of them eventually. Actually, you'll end up having, that's a herpes virus and you end up having that for life. It's in your immune area. It's in your nervous system now. Wow. But as an adult, you have a stronger, well-trained immune system, and it's actually really dangerous to get chickenpox as an adult. You can end up having like a really severe overreaction that can uh, make you extremely sick. In extreme cases, it can kill you, but like causes a lot of pain, can cause blindness, all sorts of nasty things. So wow. that's why you want to get it as a kid or get vaccinated, so you don't have to have all the sores. Um, and then you said measles, uh, which is another measles is crazy. So measles, if with your immune system, your immune system remembers the things that the bad things in your body. So if it ever sees it again, it can kill them, get rid of it. Right. Yeah. Measles has this crazy ability to erase your immune system's memory. So if you get infected with measles, as an adult, and let's say you already have immunity to chicken pox and to, I don't know, rubella and to hepatitis and HPV, your body knows how to fight those things off. If you get measles, it can actually wipe that memory. And even though you were previously immune, now if you get reinfected with that, you could actually get the infection and get sick from it, which is absolutely that's, bananas that is insane so that's why it's so dangerous for adults to get measles not just because of measles but because of it might wipe out immunity to other viruses oh yeah for sure and measles is not fun either it also can cause like uh impotence and sterility in men and like yeah. it's, it's it's not great but yeah no and this is why i i mean i'm very biased right because i study viruses but this is why i'm like i don't get it when people don't want to get the vaccines because i'm like the virus is much worse like yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I am all for vaccines. Let, I have two questions, one regarding vaccines and one regarding just virus, um, a virus that you said, HPV. You can answer either or in whatever order. Yeah. One, what is the danger to getting this vaccine? And two, why does HPV cause cancer? Doesn't have anything to do with anything, but I, those are two questions I had while you were talking. No, these are, man, I love your questions. You're coming in with good questions. Uh, <laughs> I'll, start, I'll start with uh, the COVID vaccines and then we'll, we'll switch back to HPV. Okay. So your question about COVID vaccines was what are the risks of these vaccines, right? Um, so currently we're in the United States. So the two that are uh, authorized for emergency use are the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, which are mRNA vaccines, which are very cool in their own right. Um, and it seems that outside of just like classic uh, reactions that you would get from your immune system reacting to a, a vaccine. So this is going to be like a sore arm, a fever, maybe aches and pains. You're going to be tired. These are things that are caused not by the vaccine, actually, but by your immune system reacting to the vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, there does seem to be a an elevated risk of anaphylaxis, which is allergic reaction. Um, and so you might be more familiar with this when you think of like people with bee allergies or peanut allergies and their throat closes up and it's pretty scary. Uh, but on the bright side, you, this is easily treatable with an EpiPen. So a shot of epinephrine, 
Uh, out of all the cases, there's not been any deaths that I'm aware of from this. It normally happens within the first hour of you getting the shot. Uh, but there have been more allergic reactions compared to other vaccines. So I think Pfizer's is around, I think it might be at six. It was around 11 per million shots, which is still not a lot. Um, I think it might be around six. And Moderna's, I think, is around five per million shots as compared to other vaccines, which are around one per million uh, allergic reactions. However, four out of five of those, around 80% in both cases, occur in people who have had a history of allergic reaction. So if you know that you've had a reaction to a vaccine or you've got allergies or have an EpiPen, it's just smart to make sure that you bring that and be aware of it. Yeah, but, see, because I was always wondering, because I'm super allergic to amoxicillin and penicillin. So I was wondering if that has any correlation to the vaccine and if I should be ready just in case for an allergic reaction to it. Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And if you've had allergic reactions, the, my, the number one thing is it's always better to be safe than sorry, right? And yeah. so let the person who's administering the vaccine know that up front. They'll typically monitor you for 15 minutes to an hour, uh, normally around like 15 to 30 because that's most often how it, it happens pretty quickly. Um, but if you're worried, you can hang around for an hour or so just so that they can give you an EpiPen if needed. However, what you were amoxicillin and penicillin, you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. So those are antibiotics. Those are uh, chemicals that are created by uh, fungus, actually, that kill bacteria. Um, and so it's just as those aren't inside of these vaccines. Um, they're not treated with antibiotics to the best of my knowledge, uh, they've published the, the ingredients that are inside of there and those aren't listed. So it's likely that you probably wouldn't have an allergic reaction to the vaccine. But if you did, again, EpiPen, nobody has died from it. It, it sucks. For sure it sucks, but it's better than uh, getting COVID. I mean, I, what I'm worried the most about outside of the people dying from COVID are the, the long-term effects from it. So we know it uses ACE2 as its receptor, the door to get in. Mm -hmm. That's in your lungs, but it's, we've also shown that you have ACE2 all throughout your body in your GI tract, which is why some people get diarrhea with this. Uh, it's in your cardiovascular system. So in your heart, in your circulatory system, in your, your, your veins and your why can't I never? Arteries. There we go. Uh, so we don't know what the effects are on the damage. And we know that people get long haul COVID. So I'd much rather have a short lived allergic reaction or a couple days of aches and pains than potentially even being asymptomatically infected and then being at an increased risk of having a stroke or heart attack later in my life just because I got infected. So before we get onto this HPV question, because I need another COVID question. Why is the coronavirus, if you know this, or COVID-19, let's be specific, why does it affect people so differently? And if, if, if that is like, here, how am I going to ask this? Um, is that specific to this COVID-19 or have other viruses done that in the past? Or, but why is it so different in so many different people? Like why are some people asymptomatic and some people on their deathbed? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I wish I could give you a definitive answer, but that's, that's what, it's a new virus and that's what the research is in. A lot of the people that are really sick from this are, are elderly people um, and they often have comorbidities. So there's, it's most likely that this virus is causing a bunch of damage and your, your immune system is responding to that, but that's taking away from your body's ability to focus on these other comorbidities that have there. Um, 
that could be one reason. It seems to have a higher prevalence in men than women, which could be corresponding to men have more ACE2 receptor than women do. Mm. Um, and so it could be attacking other places, but it also happens in young people. Uh, it happens in people without these comorbidities. And that's where we need more research and only time will really tell as, as scientists dig into this, but why people have different responses. I would even venture to guess that there's going to be a portion of the population who have uh, genetic risk factors. So they could have some sort of mutation that doesn't affect them across multiple things, but in this case, it, it, it puts them at a higher risk. But short answer is, I don't know. It's probably a lot of things. Yeah. Um, as, as to why this is the case with this virus and compare that to other viruses, this is actually really common across lots of viruses. So okay. um, you only care about a virus when it makes you sick, right? So yeah, yeah. people, sure. <laughs> um, millions of people get infected with the flu every year. Uh, a lot of them are probably also asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Maybe you only think that you have a cold or something like that. So you don't go in to get tested. It's only when you're like, dying and you're like, oh, this sucks that you're like, oh, I have the flu. And then you get counted for that. The difference for this is this popped up and a lot of people were getting sick with it. So we started testing it a lot and we see a lot of people who are getting infected with this. Normally we would just say, okay, we care about the people who are getting really sick. But as this is a pandemic virus, I think the biggest thing as a scientist is we had an opportunity to stop this to smallpox it or soon to polio it and just get rid of it completely from the face of the earth so we never have to worry about it again. And that's why we tried to hit it so hard in the beginning. And now I'm so hopeful that maybe we can like get it out, but it might just become something that's cold or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, as it adapts to humans, as we get the vaccines out so that it's not causing serious disease in us, it might just becomes a reoccurring cold in us, uh, which is the best case well, the best case scenario next to completely getting rid of it. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I, that's what I figured it would be. The only, um, yeah, I, I haven't really worried about it too much. I I also thought I had it. So, I mean, a lot of people say that to you, I'm sure, but when, so I'm in Oregon and that's where it kind of hit a little bit first. And during the, uh, during when it first like came wave and I never get sick and I, I don't know why I just, I rarely get sick, but when I do get sick, I always get something weird. It's like this one time I like, I don't know what it was, but I had like dots. I don't know if it was chicken pox or not, but I was like 13 and I had something weird. Like I had dots all over me. And then this one time I had like a swollen neck. And so I always get something weird. And so I was like really sick for like three weeks or like two weeks. And then I was fine. I didn't really like, I wasn't like deathly sick, but I was like sick, you know, like I was bedridden. I was cold. And then I was like, um, like I was still going to class at this point. Like we were no mass, nothing. We were like still like living. I thought it was like a cold and our entire football team got it. And then we got sent home and we got back. And then what made me really think about it was nobody really on my football team has gotten COVID yet. Mm. And so I don't know how long if you can get re sick or not um, reinfected, but it made me think about it. I was like, okay, I'm going to think right now I probably had it. And until somebody that I know who was sick at the same time I was gets COVID, um, then I'll start to be like, okay, I probably didn't have it. But that's why I thought I had it. And I wasn't really worried. But the thing that does freak me out, like you were saying, is the long-term effects of it. Like if I was sick, what am I going to have in the future um, regarding it? Um, I didn't really have that bad of a cough, but you know, I, 
I did have a cough. So like maybe later in life, I'll have like a heart attack or be easily the stroke or COPD or something like that. That's what freaks me out about this virus is we really just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, it, it's always hard to say you, you should, you shouldn't be afraid of the unknown, right? You should always just address what you do know. But the fact that we do see long haulers and the fact that we do see that it has these effects is something to keep in the back of your mind. And that's always when people talk to me, especially with the vaccines rolling out, a lot of things that people have said is like, what are the long-term effects of vaccines, right? How do I know I'm not going to get the shot and get sick two years from now? It's like, for me, I'm a lot more comfortable getting a vaccine because we have over a hundred years of vaccine research showing that really... Outside of a live vaccine, so sometimes we'll use things called live attenuated vaccines, which are like, we take the actual virus, we make it weak and infect you. Uh, And in some cases that can actually get you sick um, just at a slower pace. But outside of that, all of the side effects that you're going to get, long-term effects from a vaccine happen within six weeks. So 42 days out. Uh, And about 90% of those happen within the first two days, 48 hours. You know, if you're going to have something happen to you, it happens within the first two days. You could be in that 8% that has something happen to you within the first month, the first 30 days. And then there's like a small, small fraction of people, um, mostly people who've gotten either the live, the oral polio virus or the live chickenpox virus who've had infections that popped up around a year later, but those are infections and those are easy to tell. Whereas with the real virus, we don't, we don't know. So it's like vaccines, you know, yeah. virus, you don't. You really don't. And so back to the HPV question. Yeah. Why yeah. HPV cause cancer. I, 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 it might cause it in men, but I know for sure it causes cervical cancer in women. Why is yeah. that? Yeah. It's like, one of, if not the leading cause of cervical cancer. And it's also on an uptick for like uh, esophageal and throat and mouth cancers in men as well. And this is because there are a handful of strains of HPV, which the HPV vaccine focuses on, um, that have two proteins in them that actually target those checkpoints we were talking about earlier. Wow. So, yeah. So this virus carries two. Then the reason is, is that viruses work differently they like different types of cells, which is why you don't get caught. You don't have a cold or like flu-like symptoms when you get HPV, right? Or herpes doesn't cause you, it doesn't attack your lungs because they have different cell types that they like and they work differently. Um, and the way that HPV likes to work is it likes cells that are constantly dividing. So making new cells all the time, um, which in, in us, that's the cells inside of your mouth and your cheek. You're constantly sloughing off cells and making new cells. Uh, also in women, it's going to, I mean, and men too, it's in your urethra, but like in your vaginal tract, like the mucosal epithelia is what we call it. It's just constantly shedding and turning over. And so what the virus does is it penetrates down into the cells where they're not going to get booted out, right? So it gets into these basal cells that are making the new cells constantly. And then it uses those two proteins to essentially give the cell cancer so that that cell will live forever and keep dividing. That's all a cancer is, is a cell that those checkpoints don't work. So it just keeps making more and more of it constantly. And so the virus will trick your cell into growing forever so that it makes infinite number of viral particles. And by doing so, it gives you cancer. So I the weird thing about cancer that it makes me think about is it seems like a bad, bad strategy because it would seem that 
by making it live forever, it enhances its death. You know what I mean? So How the cell think? dies. So the cell dies when we die, right? When we die, yeah. But cancer can last a long time, right? True. Okay. And so it's not like it's not like Ebola where you get it and you die within a week. That's that's not that's not great. Mm-hmm. That's a bad strategy. But you can have cancer for years before, and that's plenty of time. Especially you can have cancer for years without even knowing it, which is plenty of time for the virus to spread on to other people because it just wants to make a ton of it and keep spreading to new and other hosts. That's fascinating. Viruses are fascinating. So back to what you said earlier um, about the difference. I mean, viruses not being living. I don't know if you said it. And if you did, I forgot. What exactly is the virus? Why is it not living? And how does it differ so much from a bacteria? Yeah, this is, man, you are, you might as well be a microbiologist. You're asking all the hard hitting questions right here. I'm just uh, an interviewer. <laughs> no, so a, uh, a virus doesn't have a lot of the qualities that we say you need to be living. And first and foremost, it doesn't make its own energy. So every living thing makes its own energy in ATP, some form. ATP, right? Yeah, ATP. That's the made in your mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. Nice. Um, at least in, in, eukaryotic and, in eukaryotic cells, bacteria do it a little differently. But essentially the easiest way to think about this is – A virus is a package of information. That's all it is. It's a ball with a code in it. And all that code says is how to make more viruses. And so you think of it like Rick rolling somebody. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when you send the link, right? And somebody, have you been Rick rolled? Was that a thing? Was that, are you too young for this? I don't think I have. Dang it, man. Wow. Now I feel really old. So it was a thing back in my day. Rick Astley had a song, never going to give you up. I know that song. I know that song. So it used to be a thing where people would just send you a link and you would click on it and then it would like set like do a pop-up, like infinite pop-ups of that song just playing over and over again. <laughs> it was terrible. It was the worst. You'd be in the middle of class like reading an email and be like, ah, oh, yeah. damn it. <laughs> uh, sorry, I don't know if I could swear on here. <laughs> no, you, you can definitely swear on here. All right, cool, cool. Pre-range. Um, but so that, that's pretty much what the virus is, is the virus is this little package and its goal, like that link in an email, is to trick your cells into clicking it and letting it into the cell. Mm-hmm. And then once it's in the cell, that little piece of information is going to take it over, kind of like taking over your computer, and it's going to say, this cell is no longer doing whatever the heck you were doing beforehand. Now we're just going to make a ton more viral particles. So make a ton more of these instructions and package them up in a little bubble and send them out. That's all a virus is. It doesn't have, unlike a bacteria that has, I don't want to anthropomorphize, I can't say the word, whatever. I don't want to give it human characteristics, but a bacteria wants to live, right? So a bacteria is going to go dormant if it doesn't have enough energy around it. It's going to, if it can move, it's going to move to where there's food at. Um, It has more processes. The virus doesn't. It just has one mission. It's like a Terminator, pretty much. It it's going to infiltrate and make more. That's fascinating because you don't think that something that's not living could have qualities that like move and things like that and like want to ha- do things. Yeah, yeah. I, that's actually what got me into studying viruses in the first place is I thought it was morbidly amazing how something so small, you can't even see it, and it's so simple. It's literally information in a bubble, Right. Uh, rabies is one of my favorite viruses. It has five proteins. We have about 30,000 or sorry, that's wrong. We have about 23,000 proteins. 
uh, 3.2 billion letters. Rabies has five proteins, like nine to 11,000 letters. That's it. So tiny. Yet, if you get rabies, 99.999% of the time, it will kill you if you don't treat it. How is that possible? And I, that's what made it really cool for me is, yeah. yeah. What is rabies? Like, I know it's in uh, animals and wild animals usually, but like, what exactly is rabies? Yeah, it, it's, it's a tiny little virus, a little RNA virus, uh, same, same type by RNA is coronavirus, but it's very different. Um, but it's a virus that is transmitted by saliva, so your spit. Um, and essentially you get it into, it goes into your nervous system. So I don't know how familiar you and your listeners are with the, the nervous system, but you have two parts of it. You have your peripheral nervous system, which are all the nerves that if you pinch, the reason you feel is it sends a signal that travels okay. wherever you were pinched all the way to your spinal cord, up to your brain. And then your brain says, ow, that hurt. And then it sends a signal back down and says, pull your hand away. So your peripheral nervous system is what allows you to feel. It also is what allows you to move. So your brain sends signals to say, hey, here's a football coming. I need to catch it. Move my arms up like this. Wow. Um, yeah. So all of the sensing that you do uh, is your peripheral nervous system. And then your central nervous system is your brain and spinal brain cord. Brain and spinal cord. Yeah. Okay. Yep, that has all the, the instructions. So what happens with rabies is it's this virus that you get bit essentially and it gets into your nervous system. And then, like I said, they're single-minded things. So the virus has one mission and it travels from your, from your neuron, from one neuron to the next neuron, to your spinal cord, up to your brain. Then it has a raging party in your brain that causes all sorts of crazy things to happen. And that's why it's not fun. It kills those oh, neurons. Man. Yeah. And then uh, essentially makes you delusional you bite somebody else uh, or spit mm -hmm. on somebody else and they get infected and the virus goes on to the next person. What fascinates me, I don't know if you've studied any brain, brain activity or anything like that, but what fascinates me is that you can retrain your brain for you to be a different person. So like, I, let me explain that in a different way. Uh, like say you have a bad habit, you can retrain your brain to have a good habit over that bad habit just by like stop doing the bad habit and bringing up the good habit. That fascinates me because I have no idea why that happens. And I have like, I've always been fascinated by the body and why it works and stuff, but I, I'm more of a philosophical person. So I start to think, why am I here? You know, things like that rather <laughs> oh, than- you know what I mean? So, um, do you know anything about the brain or any, I don't, obviously you're a virologist. Is that how you say it? I yeah. Know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I study neuroinvasive virology, so I study viruses that actually I grow brain cells in a little Petri dish in my lab. So yeah. I'm sorry. Hold on. Nope. Digression. <laughs> One, what does that mean? And two, <laughs> yeah. What does that mean? And we'll go from there. All right. Yeah. So I, I'm very stoked. It's a very cool project that we do. It's a collaboration. So we use these things. Are you familiar with stem cells? I am. Yes. Okay. So yeah, stem cells are these baby cells that can turn into pretty much anything in your, any cell in your body. Um, and there's this really cool process called de-differentiation. Uh, de-differentiation? Yep. Uh, it was uh, recently discovered. Oh man, my history is so bad. I'm just going to say within the last 20 years to give me some slack, hopefully. Uh, either way, not the point. So we have collaborators who can take skin cells essentially from you and turn those skin cells into stem cells. So we call these induced pluripotent stem cells. So we essentially take your adult cells and turn them back into baby cells. 
And then, wow. Yeah. And we can turn those into any cell that we want. So this is the future of stem cell biology. This is the future of personalized medicine. If you get an ACL tear or you need a new meniscus, we could take your own skin cells, turn them into stem cells and grow you a new meniscus to transplant. No more host graft syndrome or anything like that. It's a very cool field. Awesome. That is, that is the future. Knees ruined so many people's career. I feel like that's like that will like reinvent like football coming back. I mean, obviously like people have been coming back more and more nowadays with the technology, but that sounds like, like you get an ACL tail. It's like a sprain now almost surgery uh, in your back. That's the dream, man. That's the dream. Wow. <laughs> All right, back to the brain cells, though. Yeah, so they send us uh, these these stem cells that they start turning into what we call neuronal stem cells or neuronal progenitor cells, NPCs. And then essentially what I do in our lab is I put these cells in a little plate uh, and I grow them out into brain cells. So I turn them into cortical neurons. Uh, I actually don't. There's a lot of different types of neurons in your body, but I turn them into just, I'll just call them brain cells. And then I infect them with virus to see which ones get infected versus which ones have superpowers and can block infection. That's amazing for three different reasons. Um, The first is, can you, or I guess it's more of a question. Can you copy someone's brain cells and then make it out of their own cells? I mean, technically yes, but the way to get a brain cell is tech, Typically, the person's dead, so that's that's not very helpful. That's even better. Second question: <laughs> If they're dead and you create a brain out of, like, you create a stem, their brain, exact copy, and you put it in, just just say you put it in a robot, would that technically be that person? I mean, I love that question. This is this is the stuff that like fuels me at night when I stay up, like talking yes, bullshit answers with my friends. Yeah, yes. for sure. Uh, I'm gonna say the answer is no, and that is because of a field that I don't study, but psychology. So the way that your your brain makes you is that you we all have this general same number of brain cells Mm -hmm. but as you're growing they send signals they all talk to each other and the more that you send a signal down one route versus another if the signal takes a left and in my brain and it takes a right in your brain it's going to dig those roots out deeper and eventually that's going to create the pathways that make you who you are so if i grow new brain cells they've never had these signals so i just put it in there and it would just be a bunch of cells that need to be trained how to essentially think Although I don't know if that's even po- actually, I do know that's not possible yet. We we cannot like create artificial people yet. Yes, but third question: If you could make it an artificial person, could it could it become that person then? Mm. So like, if you have that their brain and you teach it the same things that that person knew, would it then technically be an artificial version of that person? We're in my I field think, now. <laughs> no, I I think the technical answer is no. You'd have to do a lot of copying. And this, the re, let me give you my rationale behind okay. this, right? I'm not, I'm just trying to like shoot you down. Yeah. Here's my reasoning. And I'm, I'm ready to have a great intellectual debate over this. Okay. Uh, so two examples. First, we have cloning, which is a total possible thing. Have you ever yes. heard of Dolly the sheep? Yes. Yeah. So we can make essentially the exact same genetic copy but that doesn't make it the exact same being. And then second is going to be identical twins, which is natural cloning. And you have identical twins who will grow up 100% the same, 
but they've got slightly different personality. They've got a lot of things that overlap, but they're still different from each other, right? Yeah. And I think it's just because, again, it has to go with just because you have the machinery doesn't mean you use it the same. You and I may both have a PS5, but when we're playing Madden against each other with the same exact team, the same exact lineup, one of us is going to win, one of us is going to lose because we don't operate the exact same. We don't react the exact same. Great analogy. That is a great <laughs> analogy. I was just thinking, so here's, here's my line of, line of thought. Hit me with it. So if you have an artificial brain that is the exact same brain as, now I'm just bullshitting here because this is what I do. If yeah. you have an artificial brain of like, say I pass away in the future and you, you have my brain, right? Or you make my brain out of my dead cells and you make a copy of my brain. Yeah, I've got Colin's brain here in my, here yes. in my hands in this jar. And you plop it into a exact replica made out of stem cells of my body that was existing and now I'm 20 again. So say yeah. I died when I was in my 70s, 80s, and you took my brain and put it in Colin's 20-year-old body. Yeah, no problem. I, I, cloned, I cloned you, we dollied yes. you, and I, made, I took your brain cells from when you died. I've got it. So now the question becomes, could I be me living another life then? Like, could I relive my life? Because, all right, so let's just, let's agree that consciousness is somehow energy that exists we don't know how whether it be the pathways or not it exists if could it be that if those neurons are firing in the same way i could live the life again if i was dead bro i want to say yes so bad i just i think that like if we're making new brain cells essentially they've lost the memory they've lost all of your memories we don't know like how the heck memories are stored at least maybe maybe there's going to be somebody who's in psychology or like neuroscience who knows a lot better and they're like actually we do and i would love to hear that i would too but like to the best of my knowledge like we're still like figuring this out the the brain is like the ocean of the human body like consciousness is we we understand like 0.5 percent of it if that yeah yeah Um, so i my thought is like if we're making new cells in a dish like those cells, memories, it's not like, uh, did you ever play um, Assassin's Creed? Yes. Yeah. So Assassin's Creed, they're like, oh yeah, memories are stored in your DNA. And I'm like, that would be hella dope if it was, but, but not. that's not how it works. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm fairly confident in that. So I, I don't think that you'd have the same memory. So like you would be alive, you'd be 20 years old, but like, and we could tell you, we could show you pictures and like try to like brainwash you into being like, hey, you're Colin you run this podcast calling demands answers and, but like you wouldn't be the same person. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. What I was trying to get to was after that was say I get in a car accident and have a brain injury mm-hmm. stem cells. Could you revamp the brain? If it, if part of it's still active, could you revamp it with stem cells or, would some of it still be lost? Yeah, no, this is, this is real science that we're getting into now. Like you're beforehand, we were like pushing the bounds of like super future theoretical science. Yeah. There's a ton of ethics into that. What you're talking about right now is like the forefront of science right now and, and what people want to use stem cells for. Uh, so neurons are one of the few cells in your body that you don't replace. You don't grow new ones. So skin cells you replace pretty much almost every cell in your body every seven years, you're almost a completely new person with Mm -hmm. the exception of your neurons, your nerves. They grow and then they stay. 
So when you lose brain cells, which is what people talk about with like excessive drinking and drugs and stuff like that, and this is a podcast, so I'm just going to just leave that off to the side with whether you do it or not. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But like if you lose brain cells, you can't replace them. Instead, what happens in your body is that those connections that were made in your brain, they're dead and gone forever. But the brain cells that are remaining will try to make new connections and new pathways. So that's that retraining of your brain you were talking about. What people are trying to do with stem cells is essentially you could grow those brain cells, put them back in there, and your body would rearrange them. And as you're retraining your brain, you still have the same number of neurons, so it's less effort for your body. Yeah. So So, theoretically, healing alcoholism, if you got a recovering alcoholic whose brain was still messed up, you could heal them with stem cells. If they were trying to train their brain in a new way, they could have a healthy brain again. Potentially, potentially. I mean, nothing against us. Nothing against alcoholics. I've lived the college life and drink, and I'm sure I've lost a ton of brains. Actually, I'm very positive I've lost a lot of brain cells to that. Uh, but that'd probably be lower on the list compared to like maybe somebody who's Alzheimer's. in a motorcycle accident or Alzheimer's is a great example. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, in theory, that, that could be done at some point. So now the next question, last one I have regarding neurons and brain. No, it's okay. This is great. I could, we could stay on this podcast for like six hours yes. at this level. Like yes. you are killing it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Neuralink. Mm. Elon Musk. Yes. My fear with that is that once you place AI in your brain, AI like a virus is going to want to take over the brain. I mean, I've watched iRobot. I've seen all the movies. I've seen Terminator. Yeah. I don't, I was just so interested in it. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say before you go, I was just going to say, because it seems like even the technology we have algorithms for social media, all it wants to do is enhance itself and keep you locked in somewhere for so long. Um, but it needs that biology to do it. Algorithms only work when the biology interacts with it. So if you place that in your brain, whether to be fixing Alzheimer's or motorcycle accidents, it seems like it's going to hook you on something. And it's really not even going to be you. Mm. Yeah. I mean, wow. There's a lot of things to unpack there. I mean, first of all, we have the whole social media algorithms and just that in general. Um, but yeah, so I've got a few friends who do what's called bioinformatics here. So they, they use like machine learning, they use AI. Well, I don't know how much AI, but they use a lot of, a lot of programming to try to address problems in, in like medical in the healthcare system and stuff like that. And what they always tell me, because this is beyond me, just for clarification, this is way out of my realm. I am just as philosophical as you are here with just as little knowledge, maybe probably even less. Uh, but what they always tell me is that uh, no matter what the algorithm, the program, it's only as good as the programmer. So like no matter what the inherent biases of whoever wrote that program for the AI, even if it can learn and move itself there, it's always going to be limited by the person who made it, which is the biggest fear, right? Uh, I was just talking to somebody who went to school with Mark Zuckerberg um, when Facebook started at Harvard, right? Yeah. Uh, and she was, she was like, yeah, when it started, like it was just this really innocent, like social network. Like she was there. She's an OG Facebooker. That's wild. Yeah. It's crazy. She's super cool. She's, she's, uh, she's actually a, a physician and a researcher here at Northwestern. But so she's telling us a story and yeah, my mind's blown. I'm just like, oh. <laughs> but uh, she's like, yeah. And now like as somebody who was 
on the first Facebook and like watched it grow from its infancy to seeing what it is now. Like she's like, I just can't believe it. It's crazy. It's grown out of control. And so the, the sci-fi skeptic in me, I'm with you. I'm like, I don't know. I really want to have a super smart brain. That'd be hella dope. But also how long is it until it like pings me into my own echo chambers and like takes over and is like, you know what? Humanity is its biggest risk to itself. We just need to shut you down. <laughs> I feel like that's what's ha- what, what would happen. Because the part of being a human that makes us human is that we are imperfect and we do mess up and we do fail. That's like the human stat. But if something that needs to be perfect learns that, they're like the only thing to do is to wipe it out and make it a planet of us. I saw a fascinating, fascinating uh, snippet of Joe Rogan's podcast with Elon Musk. Um, and he said, what if humans were here just to make artificial intelligence? And that, I lost it. I almost, wa- I was, yeah, I was just like, because it's the way it's going. Like the fact that we have these right here and they're just always on us and things like that. It, like humans were not meant for that and but it attacks your brain or the way people get addicted to video gaming um virtual um gambling pornography all those all these not like obviously like i'm not talking about magazine pornography i'm talking about internet no, no, porn. I, I, yeah i know very <laughs> fast i'm talking about for people who are listening they're like pornography i have a playboy no dude <laughs> um people get attached to something that's so virtual like even me, like one of the things I do to go to bed, which I would call not that harmless, but I, I watch YouTube clips or I watch, I listen to podcast clips of people that I like just so I get my mind. So I don't sit here just thinking, but even that's not healthy. So it's, it makes me think that while technology is important and everything like that, it is so inherently dangerous because it doesn't seem like biology and technology mix very well. Yeah. I think it's just been, there's a lot of things, a lot of things that go into that. And it would be so great to have like an actual psychologist here for this. But yeah, I think part of it is that we've just been growing. We've been outgrowing. What, what, what's it say? We've been out kicking our coverage pretty much with uh, advancing technology, right? So like we've made all these advancements, but we haven't had the time to evolutionarily adapt to these, right? Yeah. It's been happening so quick, so rapidly, and there's plenty of research out there that shows like the mental health um, effects, the detriments of social media, of video games, of just like having constant access to the internet, um, which is why... I, I mean, I'm guilty of it too. I, sometimes I just have to like completely do detoxes. I'm the worst IG quote unquote influencer there ever was because I just ghost my fans and all the time. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, shit, I can't do this anymore. Don't say goodbye. I'm just like, I'm out of here. <laughs> um, but no, it's, it, it, there's a lot of research that shows like essentially social media increases depression because of the way that people work on it and people actually will become addicted to these things and the algorithms are set up for addictive traits, uh, the way that swipe apps work, right? Uh, online dating, uh, again, addictive. And there's a lot of people who talk about how it's detrimental to, to relationships because- I can imagine. It changes your mindset. Um, on the flip side, again, this isn't my field. So there's also arguments on, for the benefits of these things, uh, just yeah. as a scientist, I got to clarify. But yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I love that idea. Did you ever play the game Mass Effect? No. Oh, 10 for 10 would recommend. Oh, essentially, that's, that's the concept of the game is that there is 
this precursor race that made the sentient beings, these like sentient AI. And every millennia or so, as soon as like all of life in the universe becomes so intelligent, uh, it comes out and wipes them all out. And that is kind of, or integrates them and like indoctrinates them. And that is like the cycle of life. And so like that idea of like, yeah, we're just here to create our own destroyers. Like it falls in line with that game. I love it so much. I don't think that that's the meaning of life uh, personally, uh, but I, I love that, that little mental exercise there. All right. I got to ask you, bioengineered viruses, is it in our near future? Is it scary? It's already here. Uh, that was actually something that I personally thought of uh, is the military there, us in the US military, other places around the world, we have scientists who study these things, bioterrorism is a real concern. Um, we had the anthrax scare, which is a bacterial spore that is not good, very not good, uh, deadly. Um, but that's a real thing. So we have bioterrorism. We have people who study, essentially the best way to know how to beat something is you have to know how it was made first. To deconstruct something, you have to know how to construct it. So I don't know. I've never been in the army. I've never been in a classified base, but I would imagine that in order to get ahead of our enemies or the way that other people might think is you design a bioweapon and then you design the vaccine or the antidote or the cure to it so that you know how to, to save yourself and you just hope that we are never the bastards who use that in the first place. It, what do you think scarier, bio terrorism or nuclear weapons oh no it's all bad it's all bad they're all bad yeah um, all of the above yeah i mean nuclear weapons are really terrifying especially to, i mean just the devastation of of just one but if we have a nuclear war a cold war over. like yeah that's you think global warming is a problem. Like imagine just a complete shroud of gamma radiation, nuclear radiation, and just clouds everywhere. Like that's not good. Flip side though, you release a virus that is uncontrollable into the population. You saw what happened in this pandemic. Like I couldn't get toilet paper for two months. It was ridiculous. Imagine an actual virus that is like killing not 3% of the population, 10%. but MERS, MERS killed 34%. That was a, that was a, the, another type of coronavirus. So that was 2012, uh, killed 34%. One in three people who got the virus died. Imagine if we had that virus that was running on the loose right now. Which is also when people are like, oh, this was made in the lab. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a shit virus to make in the lab. This is not made in the lab. They fucked up, up. They would not target 75 and older and like yeah. a small subset. Depends on who is doing it. If they were a eugenic person, they might. Um, yeah, dude, it, it, what fascinates me about these questions is you know, what if Hitler had these weapons that we have today? He wanted them. He for sure wanted them. He, uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, he didn't, we didn't know about bio, biochemistry. We did. We did. What are you talking about? Uh, Mustard it, gas. Uh, there's tons of chemical warfare that was used. I mean, the gas chambers that were used in concentration camps, uh, yeah. these are, those are bioterrorism weapons. They're awful, awful things that really are terrible and yeah. they're actually war crimes. So, countries that use them are charged and yeah it's just not good one of the most fascinating things i've ever heard about hitler was he um 
so when he was starting his little reign, he would go into the um, he would go into the factories and clean up the factories. And the gas he used to get the rodents out and everything was Zyklon, which is exactly what he used in the concentration camps. So he that like that's how evil he was. He he really thought people were rodents and and um, and. Um, No. I can't think of what the word I was thinking of like insects. That's the word I, I, was, yeah. I can't think. What are the, I'm so, no, no. Insects is such, I'm so glad that you use this. Cause I do love, I find this fascinating. It's not what I study. I won't pose guys to be an expert in any of this, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, of like uh, Rwanda, right? The Hutu and the Tutsis. Yes. So that whole genocide that happened, the propaganda, there's a great, if you have Hulu, it is a great, great docu-series. It's called Why We Hate. I love it. Um, and they talk about this, but like the whole propaganda was that they started talking about the, the other version. I can't remember who, I can't remember who the, who the high and who the low was, the Hutu versus the Tutsi, but whoever the low was like on the radio stations and everything, they would dehumanize them in order to take you the, the, your vision of them so that you didn't think of them as humans as equals anymore. And they would call them insects. So they'd be like the insects uh, have come to this place or the insects are living in here and just hearing it over and over again. These people prior to this live together in harmony similar to prior to world war two, right? Like prior to the Holocaust is they live together in the same place as neighbors and it was propaganda and hate speech and these mental tactics it's psychology that turned people who were friends into complete enemies and that blows my mind it actually it didn't terrify me but it was really crazy to see a lot of the similarities that you were seeing in i i'd hate to get into politics but like in the last four years yeah it's definitely been around beforehand but they're like it's been highlighted by the media for sure a lot of the same rhetoric that you like you watch that documentary and you're like, wow, this is what Hitler was saying. Wow, this is what the Hutus were saying. And you're like, oh, it's kind of scary to hear Americans saying the same things. I, I, don't, I don't like it. I'm going to give a shout out to the Constitution, though, for a second, because this is what I study. Uh, Hell yeah. We, we um, uh, thank God we designed our government system in the way we did because nothing gets done and everyone just argues and everything. And, but no, no one can just come to power and just take over. Yes. And, <laughs> um, and then we just keep getting better at it over time. I say this relatively, we got, we have gotten better of this over time. And so in theory, it works perfectly because realistically, no one can just take over. The problem is George, the people who wrote this, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and John Jay had no idea that we were going to have Twitter on our phones and that the media was going to not be media and it was going to pick sides. They had no idea that was going to happen. So they also said we should write a new constitution every 20 years, but that's another thing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I didn't know that actually. (laughs) Yeah, they they thought. Well, they also thought by the time they, they put this in the Constitution, they said, yeah, by 1808, which was 20 years from when they wrote the Constitution, yeah, we'll figure out slavery. <laughs> they really thought that. They said, by the year 1808, slavery will be done. Well, we won't worry about it. They just oh, kind of kicked the can, and that's literally in the Constitution. It says no, the importation of slaves basically cannot be um, gone by the year or ha- cannot be uh, – you can't stop it before the year 1808 because they really thought that it'd be done by then. And like – 
not only do we have a civil war, but we're still fighting racial injustice in this country. They really thought 20 years was enough time to just kick it down uh, the road. That's a, such a great fun fact. Like I, I love learning a new thing every day. That is my favorite thing that I've learned today. <laughs> it is. It's wild to think. Um, it's wild to read it. Um, because the cool thing about our constitution is too, it's so vague, but it's also so like worded, like the way it wanted to be worded. They specifically left out race until the 13th, 14th Amendment because we needed it then um, to free the slaves and to make everyone citizens. But they specifically left out race and um, gender and things like that because, well, they said men, but uh, they didn't talk about women because they knew that like don't like don't get it twisted like even my professor says this um he says like they were disgusted by um slavery the northerners the, the people who were intellects were disgusted by slavery they just they knew it was a part of the economy and they knew that they couldn't get out of england unless they had the southerners um um the southerners content basically so they had to like compromise but they were disgusted by it so they specifically left out wording so that we because they figured obviously by 20 years but at least by 2021 we could easily like learn how to grow. And so I will give us some credit. We have gotten better at it. We have signed in rights. We have passed um, constitutional or make, making things unconstitutional through the Supreme court that has made it better to live here. So I will say, thank God that it was so vague because if they were like, if they had just written all white men are created equal, that would have made it really hard for us to do things. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I, I never am I ever, one to be like, oh, I'm ashamed to be an American or something yeah. like that. Like we live in an amazing country. The thing that always ashamed, like shames me is just how long it takes us to get to these things. Like how long does it take for civil rights? How long yeah. does it take for women's suffrage? How long? And, and now it's like, I don't know. Civil rights to me is just basic human decency. Like, yeah. I don't care whether you're straight or gay. Like, why does it matter? Why do I get the ability to tell you what to do with your life, right? Like, why can't we just treat everyone equally? And that's the basis of this country. But it takes us forever to get there. You want to know something fascinating about how gay marriage was passed? Yes, please. <laughs> um, so this was prior to it. The sort of the case was Obergefell v. Hodges, which is the case that legalized gay marriage in the United States, 2015, I believe. Um, but don't I don't know the year exactly. So um, Lawrence v. Texas. All right. Lawrence v. Texas was a case where um, so the law was there was a law I don't want to say Connecticut. There was a law basically somewhere. Lawrence v. Yeah, did I say Lawrence v. Texas? I don't know. Doesn't matter. There was a law that said that. Um, Sodomy was illegal, heterosexual, homosexual, anywhere. And what happened was Lawrence was a gay man who was um, in, in either his apartment or the person he was hooking up with apartment. And the police officer came to like deliver a ticket or to get him because he had not paid for a ticket. And he like the door was open when he got there and no one would answer it. So he went in and found these people committing sodomy mm -hmm. um, and they arrested them in their apartment. And this led to the Supreme court case, Lawrence v. Texas, and then ultimately led to uh, Obergefell v. Hodges. But it all started because a police officer just walked in some guy's apartment and saw this. Uh, I mean, we have the whole police thing going on right there too, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. That's, that is that is cool. That is very interesting. I, 
I honestly, what I was thinking about that whole time though, with like the, it's illegal to commit sodomy is I used to follow back when I was on Twitter was like, there was an account that was just like ridiculous laws that are still laws. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that just always is what I reminded of. It's like, it's illegal to like eat fish on a Thursday in like some random County. And it's like, how do these things get on the books? Like who is passing these things? Well, people forget um, what they forget so much is that our country is very federalist. So the 10th amendment literally says that all powers not given to the federal government through the constitution, written constitution are gave to the States. Mm -hmm. So the States for literally until the 14th amendment thought that nothing applied to them and they could just do whatever they want. Like I think Oregon, like the state I live in made it so African-Americans couldn't live in that state for a while. Uh, And (laughs) and so, but then the 14th amendment came along like, yeah, that does not, you have to listen to the federal government, but we still live in a federalist government. So the 10th amendment still exists. So the States, whatever's not written, marijuana, abortion before the constitutional, um, the, the Roe v. Wade, um, uh, all these really, really, really important cases that we wanted to deal with aren't written in the constitution because they had no idea they were going to be things in the future. So it's been this state problem and ultimately has gone, had to go to the Supreme court for us to just live decent lives, basically. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, th- I don't know. This is where you have like morality versus like the constructs of like the actuality that you live in. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely torn. I don't have an answer. I wish I did, but like, I, I don't disagree with states' rights. Like states having the ability to be like, hey, we know what's best for our state because Arkansas is different from New York, is different from Oregon, is different from California, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so I, I get that. You, you should be looking out for the people who are within your state. But I don't know. The thing that just triggers me, I, I opened up by talking about education being what I'm really passionate about. And I think that when it comes to everybody being able to start from like an equal basis just like if this is the country of equality this is the the melting pot of the world where like everybody comes Mm -hmm. to have this greater life i don't get how we don't have like the basic rules at this point to give everybody that that equal treatment right so the fact that i don't know your right to do what you want with your body is was something that is like took so long to do the right to for everybody to get married i feel if one person has the right to do it everybody should have the right to do it the problem is what i was saying before this is our our constitution is written in such a way that nothing ever happens in the legislative branch unless it's dominated by one side or the other and no way in hell is two-thirds of the house because the entire um Republican Party will not vote for abortion. So it has to go to the Supreme Court. I think eventually, eventually things like marijuana and um, things like, obviously abortion is already illegal, but uh, things like that will be like, I feel like as this next generation dies off, our our generation brings up, I think a lot, the parties are going to switch a lot um, in the way they act. And I think it's going to be more of like extremely progressive versus like, um, almost like believes in equality, hopefully equality, but is like more like about private industry. I think it's going to be more about economics in the future and about self individual versus togetherness, which is the best case scenario. But I'm over all of this, just to scratch it. I have a question for you and I don't want to forget it. Um, uh, what is the deadliest virus? Oh, known oh, to man. That, that's a, 
That's a great question. So I don't uh, mean to just jump like that, but <laughs> I, yeah, now, oh my gosh, I, I was just in like politics, moral and ethics mode right now. And now I got to go back to science, Kenan. Um, no, that's a great question. I wish I knew the actual answer. Um, I'm sure the internet has it out there. If I had to guess if this was trivia, so don't hold this as true. Yes. I would guess the most deadliest virus Hmm. Are we talking about in like terms of case fatality or total people dead? Ooh, let's go. Let's go mortality rate, whatever that falls upon. Okay. So I would say in terms of like the most gruesome graphic would probably be either Marburg or Ebola. Is it Zaire? So in some cases of that, like, 90 to 100 percent of people who get it die i'm also going to throw rabies there though because prior to having uh the vaccine and the uh the antibody treatment for it rabies kills 100 percent of of people i think there's maybe one account of somebody surviving having rabies ever um so in terms of like if you get it you're screwed yeah uh Ebola, Marburg, right now, there's, there's no treatments. There's a couple experimental treatments out there, but pretty much they kill, at best, uh, one out of every two people. So you have a 50-50 chance of living or dying from it. Mm-hmm. At worst, uh, upwards of that. So you're most likely going to die. Um, and then, yeah, rabies as well, because prior to treatment or left untreated, you will die. So... I know, I think this is a bacteria, but malaria, what exactly is malaria? Yeah, so malaria is a parasite spread by, so actually, fun fun fact, when I started into this, I stumbled into how I, what I do now. Uh, I started studying mosquito viruses. So this was actually, it worked out well because it fell right around when Zika was coming out and I was studying uh, the mosquitoes in that, in that region as well. Um, but malaria is spread by the Anopheles mosquito, I believe. Um, and it's a parasite and actually having sickle cell helps you not get sick and die from malaria, but malaria is a really shitty thing to have. It kills a child. I think the statistic is like every five minutes, it might even be worse than that. A child dies from malaria. I think it's like, I think the stat is that I think that's the most deadliest animal on the earth. And I think it's like a million people a year. Oh yeah. No mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are the, I always joke. Mosquitoes are the grim reaper. Um, so if, 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 if God is, if God exists, uh, sure. I believe in God, but like if he created everything, he created mosquitoes solely for the purpose of killing things. Because I've seen, I've seen a few studies that talk about like you could get rid of all mosquitoes and the diversity and plethora of insects. Like none of the animals that eat insects would be harmed by that. You could still like maintain life. Um, so you don't really need them. They are key pollinators, but I think you can still pollinate without them. Although RIP to the bees, that's a big issue. Um, but what they do do is they spread a shit ton of viruses and kill and a shit ton of diseases and kill a lot of people between malaria, uh, Zika, West Nile, um, dengue. Oh, what else? There's, there's a ton, uh, Eastern equine encephalitis, Japanese encephalitis virus. There's, they spread a lot of disease uh, and kill a lot of people and injure a lot of people every single year. So why is the, that was weird. Why are the um, mosquitoes in the United States not very dangerous then? Uh, they are. The fact is that we have a really great mosquito control pro, um, programs, which they are like the unsung heroes of, 
of that problem, actually. So we have a lot of people who dedicate their time to making sure that we maintain mosquito populations and we do a lot of surveillance for, we still have cases of, of West Nile and occasionally Triple E and things like that. Um, the mosquito that spreads dengue isn't really prominent here. It, they're spread by different type, different diseases are spread by different types of mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have the mosquitoes that spread diseases, but a huge part of that is just the mosquito control groups and the people out there who are literally making research to kill mosquitoes. There's this really cool vector biology research where uh, we release sterile males. And so they reproduce with the females, but they don't have any viable offspring. So essentially they all have sex, no new babies are made. And that like drastically reduces the mosquito population. So less mosquitoes means less access to people means less spread of diseases. Well, I think that's a good way to end it, man. Thank you for coming on my show, man. Dude, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. As you can see, he had a great time. I had a great time. We had a great conversation. Real intellectual debate about consciousness there in the middle. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you didn't listen. Go back and check it. Um, All new episodes posted in the middle of the week. Follow me on my social media at Colin Demands. And as always, stay demanding.